You are listening to National Security Law Today. Welcome to National Security Law Today, the podcast of the American Bar Association Standing Committee on Law and National Security. I am Nicole, a member of the committee staff. Legal podcasts always have caveats, so here is ours. Your other moderators today are national security attorneys who are here as individuals and not on behalf of their agencies or firms. You can find more about the Standing Committee online or join our listserv at AmericanBar.org slash NatSecurity. The ABA Standing Committee is comprised of seasoned national security lawyers and law professors. The committee has spent the past 55 years keeping lawyers and the public informed and aware of the most pressing questions in national security law. Join us at one of our monthly speaker programs or at our annual conference on November 1st and 2nd to hear more about what's happening today and what will happen tomorrow on these issues. During the podcast, you can find links to the Black Letter Law and articles on today's topics at AmericanBar.org slash NatSecurity and in the notes to this podcast. At the end of the cast, please drop us a note at NationalSecurity at AmericanBar.org, on Twitter at ABA NatSec, or on our Facebook page. We welcome your feedback. This week, we're going to continue our conversation with Megan Stiefel, who's the founder of Silicon Harbor Consultants, a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Cyber Statecraft Initiative, and the former director for international cyber policy at the National Security Council. Megan is also the author of a recent paper, Securing the Modern Economy, Transforming Cybersecurity Through Sustainability. And we're talking to her today about her vision for a sustainable future for the cyber landscape. I do have to wonder, quite frankly, after I watched the Facebook hearings, whether or not members of Congress would benefit or should be required to have some sort of a uh, cybersecurity training or some basic fundamentals on technology and data science so that they can do their jobs better, uh, maybe for their staff as well. I do think cabinet heads of the executive branch should be subjected to more than an annual cybersecurity review, if that's an option, in my opinion, or would an executive order fix this or not? And I recognize that these are extreme suggestions, but I feel that they should at least be discussed, even if they're dismissed outright by um, some of the members of Congress who had a hard time pronouncing the words relevant. You mean you mean the information um, is in the computer? Yes. <laughs> Sorry. Um, and then there were some who surprised, who you would not think had such a great command, who seemed to be doing quite well. So... It, Interestingly, not to keep going back to you have to have seen it to believe it, um, there used to be an office in on the Hill that some of the listeners may be familiar with, which was OTA, the Office of Technical Advisory, OTA, uh, Awareness. Some, uh, so the OTA office existed from the late 70s to 1995, and its job was to educate staff and members on technology. It got defunded. Um, so there's an effort to refund that office, but it's not. So yes, I think there's there is a great. We're well past the time where we need to have members have a better understanding. There are some opportunities for staff that happen at the beginning of every new Congress to educate staff on these issues, but from from our perspective, I think Lisa, you may be shocked to hear that there. From what I understand, of some of these uh, staff training opportunities, there is not a teacher, if you will, a uh, facilitator who has a background in the law enforcement community. So it's, um, I think it's, I think that the training itself is important, but I think it's also important to bring in someone from the legal community to talk about, it's all fine and well to talk, to expect uh, providers to 
give information to the government, but you need to understand that actually they can only do that in certain circumstances. It's not as easy as just kind of waving your fingers and suddenly Google or Microsoft shows up at the door and says, here you go, government, have at it. So yes, I think there's there's an opportunity for, for not an opportunity, There's a, we should be requiring more of our members and, and senators. With respect to executive department heads, certainly. Um, and this, but this is a challenge not just with the government, right? We have this, this, the absence of understanding goes all the way down to the consumer, but all, I don't even know the latest statistics on the, the shortage of cybersecurity experts that we need to... Yeah, and I, I don't know. Um, so, I, I mean, the, the question becomes, you know, what's the standard? Does every member of Congress need to be certified information system security professional no. meeting an ISO standard for cybersecurity engineering or leadership in order to make a law about what is or is not a device that should be connected to the Internet? And, uh, I, I mean, I, I think, Megan, certainly the the... the the framework for the conversation in this white paper about the modern economy really becomes fundamental to what are the emerging technological considerations that we have to think about in addition to some of those long-standing legal and policy and governance principles, right? Who watches the watchers? Does the public that elects the Congress need to be better educated about cybersecurity principles? Yes, I would think so. So one of the crazy ideas that I have, which is my own idea and cannot be attributed to the ideas of anybody who's mm-hmm. listening or anybody with whom I'm affiliated, um, is the possibility of a consumer-oriented executive order, which is not to say because executive orders rely on mm-hmm. agencies, departments and agencies, existing authorities. They do not create new authority. There are, I think, opportunities for a number of departments and agencies to come together to really focus on how do we educate the consumer. A well-educated consumer can begin to drive demand on corporations. This is, again, sort of where this, why I came to the sustainability concept. We often associate it with conservation efforts, and it, we now have companies that are competing, competing on the fact that they are green. We are, we're probably, I think this building is a, is a LEED-certified building, right? Um, Companies compete on this, and they actually outperform their peers when they take a more sustainable approach. So the idea is investing in the beginning to secure the future. So, again, back to the EO. You know, I, the four things that I least I could do, but I could come up with more, um, are looking again at this the labeling concept that we had. So NIST could make recommendations. The Energy Star label actually came out of um, Congress, obviously developed it. It's funded um, by an appropriation to DOE. EPA administers it. There is a certification. There's a standard process, and then there's a certification process. There's a third party that evaluates it. So there's history here where we might look to. to so that could be one part of the EO. Looking at um, the awareness campaign that might go along with it. We've talked about now that the Department of Justice is, is going to be making, I haven't finished reading the um, digital cyber report that the department put out last week, but one of the things that we know is they're going to be doing more outreach around malign foreign influence operations. So this, the analogy here might be directing departments and agencies to develop an awareness campaign along the lines that we remember Smokey the Bear, Woodsy the Owl. There was Harvey an, the Hacker. I mean, what? Right. Well, more of um, what could it be? You know, protect democracy, deploy two-factor authentication, or you know, you can almost go back to not to jump into the Russia thing that right now, but. Um, some of the the campaigns that we had in the 70s around loose li- loose lips sink ships. Of course, that was deployed at the NSA, but other We're campaigns. The 40s. We're the Duck 40s. Cover. There was <laughs> that whole there was that whole there was that whole World War II experience yes. when uh, the American system defended itself from uh, Nazi and fascist foreign propaganda, right. uh, And malign foreign yes. influence. And I think through the uh, enactment of FARA, now 
Yeah, somewhat and, and, out of date, given yeah. our face, Facebook doesn't have to register. But yeah, and, and I think those who are unfamiliar, uh, and, and there may be some who aren't, um, the Deputy Attorney General, Rod Rosenstein, just last week in Aspen, Colorado, gave a speech releasing the Cyber Task Force report and very clearly stating um, how the Department of Justice was going to begin uh, defending the nation from malign foreign influence and calling on all citizens to yeah, question the things that they read on the mm-hmm. Internet. So, uh, so I mean, I, I think that's probably one of those things that's going right in cybersecurity and, and the land of cybersecurity policy. Are there other things that you see going right, uh, Megan, in, in cybersecurity writ large in and, the country? And, and if I may, too, I, I want to draw you out on, on your education concept a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, we joke about smoking the bear. I do feel like agencies could do things like put out videos, for example, um, podcasts, things that could educate consumers do you have a vision for what this might actually look like? Um, it's not a very, it's still jello. Okay. It's not a big kick. Uh, but I think. Molded though? Is it molded jello? <laughs> probably. In fact, okay. I actually just came from a meeting where I, there's a colleague of mine has something already in the bag, which would be great that we could just now pull off the shelf and now is the time to bring this forward. But so the issue I think is around right now we have. Some of our listeners may remember we have lots of acronyms in cybersecurity. One of them is NICE, the National Initiative for Cybersecurity Education, which has both a focus on um, expanding uh, the education at the kind of, well, excuse me, its primary focus has been kind of racking and stacking and identifying career paths, career positions that require some knowledge of cybersecurity. There is also a component of it that's intended to focus on developing curriculum around um, computer science and cybersecurity, but I understand that that's not been, not really taken off. Um, but I do think, I mean, we need to be, my argument is that we need to be looking, starting at the earliest ages. My five-year-old knows to recycle. Um, we can be teaching age-appropriate habits for, some people call my, it. My eight-year-old was taking computer coding and right. aftercare uh, yes. when he was in the first grade. Right. Uh, the challenge, the, the, the concern is that I think we are where we are because in computer science, Security has not been a requirement. So you could graduate from a college with a computer science degree and never have taken a class in security. That doesn't make any make sense. Make billions of dollars in a startup <laughs> and not to know too much about cybersecurity. Yes. You're going to cash out and go to the next big idea. And it, and it may be, again, back to these human principles. When ARPA, the Advanced Research Projects Agency, the Department of Defense, built what is now the Internet, all of that hardware infrastructure uh, and code was built on the assumption that everyone touching those devices had a security clearance and was inside of a building where they had already been authenticated and carrying a hard token credential. So, it, I mean, it, I think you, we talked about baking in security. Um, I'm just really glad that there are people putting time, effort, and energy into researching how we improve the ship we're all flying in now. Yes. It may have been built with some flaws. Yeah, I think, so, yeah, the a couple of reactions to that. Yeah, the, the first internet was built around trust, and now it's being used to degrade trust. Exactly. Um, so we need to undertake steps that, and so the argument of the paper is we need to reframe FUD, fear, uncertainty, and doubt, to something that gives users the sense of empowerment, both corporations and consumers. Simple things, not, you should change your password, and you should make it 17 characters long, and you should use uppercase and lowercase, and you should remember to have a different password for every single site that you're on. Now, I am not on that many sites. I can't keep track of them all. Um, but, you know, one of our former colleagues um, who was a member of this presidential commission that I mentioned, Steve Jabinski, has said, you know, we have to take security away from the consumer. And part of that is then 
getting corporations to build more secure devices, getting enterpri- getting um, enterprises to better manage their networks. Um, it does come, so we need to be not just focused on expanding security training at the graduate and postgraduate level, but looking at ways that we can teach the smallest of our users um, to be good cyber citizens or, you know, one of the things, some people don't like the phrase cyber hygiene, practice good cyber hygiene. Another phrase that I've heard recently is cyber civics, which I think is... Well, we're, we're big fans of putting civics back in school because I think it gives people context. So the idea of cyber civics is very appealing, quite frankly. Um, but to your question, Andrew, about who's doing things right, there are efforts. I think a lot of the, it's mostly in the security community. Mm. You may have seen that Palo Alto Networks has teamed up with the Girl Scouts. Um, so it's not just, I think. I did see that, yeah, yes. Which is I like that. fantastic. Um, and there are, Cisco and Semantic are all doing, developing more uh, resilient and, and more secure products. But what concerns me is not those folks, but we need to make it easier. We don't need to. We should be putting the burden all on the security community. We need to be putting putting some of the burden on the corporations that are developing the smart toothbrush and the smart toilet and <laughs> and, and and I hear your point too. And we we need to put some education in front of the consumer and stop infantilizing them and imagining that they can't ultimately grasp this stuff with sufficient education. I'm sure most people could. Yeah, but I think it's simple messages. You know, one of the one of my colleagues that I'm working with. Um, comes from the preparedness background it's hurricane season you know have you trimmed your trees we need to it's it needs to be simple concise things that a consumer can reasonably do without too much education and for those who want to be ultra secure and you know live in you know build their (laughs) preparedness tunnel safety first i mean i i think um it's really interesting i'm gonna gonna quote the the director of the national counterintelligence and security center uh bill evanina is a former fbi uh, senior special agent um, and he recently was giving a talk at another Aspen uh, Institute forum where he mentioned that, he, that, that the biggest trouble he sees being caused across government and the private sector in America is that Americans seem to be the world champions of clicking links that look appealing. And, um, you know, simple acts like mousing over the link to see where that URL is taking you before you click to see the video of the farting babies is... Um, I mean, that's public education 101. I feel like you're disparaging babies. No, we love babies. Uh, but, 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 I, but I read a book once that said that videos of farting babies were like the number one clickbait. But, uh, but Americans... Or the, I saw you at the party the other day. <laughs> so this is an interesting thing uh, culturally. Just kidding. Yeah, no, this is an absolutely interesting thing culturally as well, though, is that yes. so other societies where some of these threats are arising from and attacking us... The members at the individual level of those societies don't trust information they find on the internet, and they don't click on clickbait at nearly the levels that Americans and American leaders do, um, which says something about your, your fundamental concept about trust and how do we start um, rebuilding some awareness and stop maybe being overly trusting of what we find on the internet. Yes, but I think there is a role for the platforms here, too. Mm-hmm. And I, Kind of come back to it again. You have to see it to believe it. The opening line in Facebook's testimony was, we are an idealistic and opportunistic company. That's fantastic. But that means that you need to also think about, you have a public safety role in now that you are so huge. And that role ought to include things like, here I go again with the oughts, but um, face the what, what and Facebook stock is down like thirteen dollars. Twenty five percent. Twenty five percent today. Uh, and it, right, but, so, yeah, I th- yeah, but, but 
Um, so I the I use that that language by example of, oh, we're just everything's roses. We're here to connect the world. Well, if you're going to connect the world, that means you're bringing the world to you or to your users. And if you are not thinking about how could clickbait be used to support foreign malign influence operations or compromise users' credit card information, you got a problem, I would argue, in your platform. I hope that in the next few years, Silicon Valley really looks at Facebook as a, as a learning example. They are spending gobs of money now on, on re- or revamping their, net, their networks. And it's not just about privacy. I mean, I think you know, the compromise of, of user information because somebody didn't affect in the infrastructure, sort of at the admin side, didn't you know, authorize the disclosure of consumer of user information that they shouldn't have. But um, you know, look at their, some of their peers. Yahoo has had an actual data breach. Google had a data breach. You know, this is we need our the venture capitalists and the private equity firms in the world to be supporting better cybersecurity by asking hard questions of the companies in which they're investing. And if I could add, I mean, this is maybe just as harebrained as anything, but to Andrew's point about the spontaneity with which Americans do things um, in, in terms of clicking on, you know, I do wonder if there isn't a role in sort of changing the culture within Facebook. I mean, quite frankly, it came out that they'd hired members of the gaming industry in order to make people uh, more addicted uh, to going on to Facebook. And this is highly troubling, particularly if you're a parent, but even if you're not, um, I just wonder if they just need to do a hard reset, top to bottom. Yeah. Um, on the sort of tying things back to the law, there is a role for public safety. I think we need to be drawing more attention to that, particularly among social media companies. But, um, you but know, I, even... Your 25% remark is very important because the fact that their stock is tumbling after having uh, facilitated, wittingly or unwittingly, a lot of what occurred around the election um, and some of the other sort of terribles that we've heard about you know, I think companies should should listen carefully to your concept that we're talking about the economy and sustainability. And if you're not doing these things, you may be riding high today. Your stock may tumble tomorrow. It certainly happened to Yahoo in, in a just almost a cataclysmic uh, way. Um, and, and I certainly hope that companies will take that seriously uh, and reorient their culture and reorient the way that they are approaching these things. And you know, put resources and acquire the individuals necessary to get the job done. But anyway, I, I would like to say that um, there is an important aspect of this, and this is the threat to our national security. So um, I'm, I'm wondering if you could talk briefly. I, some of this is obvious in the context of, you know, elections and foreign malign influence, but quite frankly, as this continues, um, if we don't up our game, if these companies don't up their game, it becomes a matter of national security. Can you talk about why in the most sort of basic, factual way? So I think there's two, um, two sort of straightforward ways to think about this. One is, as we put all of these Internet of Things devices we, online, as, as we talked about earlier, they are collecting data. So the compromise of user data through insecure devices presents a national security problem. If we think a couple of us in this room are victims of the OPM data breach. So that information in the hands of criminals and nation state actors poses a beyond lifetime risk to those individuals and their families, um, depending on the way it's used. So there's the, the national security risk presented by the you know, a foreign actor knowing, I've had a security clearance for over 20 years, I think now, or mm -hmm. almost 20 years. So that goes back, so add 27 years, the 
of information, right? Um, knowing my friends, it allows, among other things, it makes you an easy victim to spearfish um, or a host of other opportunities. Identity theft, a number of things. So we have one national security issue is, you know, if a nation state knowing too much about our citizens and using that for heaven only knows what, what number of reasons. Um, recruiting them to steal corporate secrets. Two is the access that these devices present. Who are targeting distressed areas for acquisition of things. Yes. They, the technology of which they want to steal because there's a an opioid area um, uh, in a Rust Belt area where these people are, are struggling. Let's go in and steal, you know, what technology is left, not through cyber means, through acquisition. If they know enough about a community, if they mm-hmm. understand enough because they've acquired this information, I don't even think we know the limits of what could take place. Yes. So the other, so the question of user data collected by the devices, but also too is the the access that the, these devices enable, both to the network, so it's at a home network, or um, the connection back to the home server of the whomever the device is calling home to. So if you have a baby camera that's operated by Nest, it's phoning home to Google. Um, so there is now Google is probably got this figured out, right? Their, their, their device is probably less likely to be compromised and to create a tunnel back to Google so that a, an actor could use the Nest camera for getting into my home network to tunnel back to Google to try and steal their intellectual property. But there are other baby camera device manufacturers out there who may not be as, as sophisticated as Google. So there's the ability to um, gain access to the, the home network, meaning the user network, the corporate network, but also using the device as we talked at the very beginning about botnets, turning the device as a basically turning it into a bullet, or in this case, you know, a the biggest, we just saw the largest botnet to date, which I think was 1.3 terabytes. So a transatlantic cable is 3.2 terabytes per second. So as I was reading these articles. Talk about an accelerant. It's like right. uh, throwing something way beyond gasoline on a fire. Yes. And now some of these larger botnet attacks are easier, I guess, as I understand it, um, easier to mitigate because you basically block them. You know the IP address and you just dump it. But the challenge is that they continue to grow. And Well, they we change topology, right? They're yes. constantly changing. Um, so we yeah. that is also a risk to national security. We know that, for example, the Iranians used distributed denial of service attack to go after U.S. banks in 2012 and 2013. Um, the other point I would say is is more back to the point about trust. We rely on the Internet to do just about everything. The Internet, devices connected to the Internet to do just about everything. Are we so far that we won't go backwards? Which is to say, are we going to start seeing people disconnect? We hear people being off the grid. Not necessarily, but the challenge is that the eroding trust is is. I think what people refer to often as balkanizing the internet. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the outcomes or sort of observations um, that that I've had following sort of what we've seen over the past 36 months is um, authoritarian regimes don't support an open internet. And, wow, I wonder why. <laughs> but they've used the open internet to their advantage to basically get us to not trust the you know, well, internet. Uh, well, and they, and they also don't uh, require that for government funding of, of technological development is, is this that a, that stuff be published publicly. And again, but if you talk about Balkan, you could say balkanization, but are you, aren't we also then talking about um, 
of values-based competition of systems and ideas mm -hmm. that we've been having as long as there has been a, a free democratic, free world, based from the post-World War II order, right? You've mm -hmm. had a Bretton Woods system of countries uh, that respect things like a Geneva Convention, Convention for Law of Armed Conflict, fighting against enemies who do not, right? Mm -hmm. uh, you have countries that respect uh, transparency in their capital markets and subject their companies to the whims and vagaries of investor fear versus centralized economies that are planned and don't follow those rules. Um, and, and that's where I say I, I see a lot of hope when in this free market economy that we have, there are people like you and your colleagues dedicating time to finding solutions to these challenges. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, it's a hard question. I see a lot of hope um, because, yeah, the struggle between rule of law systems and people that follow rules of decorum and civility, uh, concepts Openness, as, as yes. old as the Greeks, um, historically there are troubles, but I think we are where we are today because in the end, the good guys do sometimes win. Absolutely, and I think that's where the sustainability approach kind of changes the narrative in a way that we can get corporations and consumers to to do what we ought what we what they ought to do um and well, maybe, let's add funders and investors oh yes absolutely well. um we we need those funders and investors but um there is a role for governments here and i but i don't think that there's they're the only actor in the space who can make meaningful difference i think that consumers need to start ask, demanding more of the market but mm -hmm. what we need in part are, is data to help them make the argument of um and we need as I, we talked about sort of other organizations like civil society organizations to get the data, to take the data to help make meaningful arguments to say, actually, you could develop that product more cheaply if you embedded security in the beginning. And so do that and slap this label on it. And we'll Would be that, that were the case. I, right. I am looking forward to that day. Well, Megan, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. I hope that you'll join us again for another cast. Um, I want to commend you on this thoughtful and important work. And I highly recommend it to our listeners um, Megan's paper, and in particular her careful outline at the back of the white paper, provides an excellent roadmap for leaders and consumers. We have it hyperlinked here. Download it, read it, talk about it while you're enjoying that chai latte with the other chief information security officer you know. Share it with the member of Congress that you serve and push it up to the people who can make it a reality. And if you are a leader or an investment advisor, I hope that you will consider this as a way forward. Uh, and as a consumer, don't settle for less cybersecurity just because you're in a hurry in your life or you want that $50 uh, device. Demand more. Uh, national security lawyers take this as your biggest challenge to date. And thank you for listening to the podcast of the Standing Committee on Law and National Security. Tune in again soon for our next episode. So right now, if you're out there thinking about how much you want to practice law in a skiff and pop vitamin D all day... Or you're just smart enough to know that national security law gives you a front row seat to history. And you just don't want to sit on the sidelines or watch life from a distance. Then join us again next time for National Security Law Today, brought to you by the American Bar Association's Standing Committee on Law and National Security. Remember, listening to a podcast, following us on social media is greatly appreciated, but let's face it, social networking isn't really networking. Show up at one of our breakfasts, lunches, or conferences. And don't miss the annual review conference in Washington, D.C. on November 1st and 2nd. And let me add that we will be further discussing the issues in today's podcast at that time. 
Check us out at AmericanBar.org slash NatSecurity, follow us on Twitter at ABA NatSec, or follow us on Facebook. And don't forget, every serious national security lawyer has one great book on their desk, the 2017 U.S. Intelligence Community Law Sourcebook, available for purchase on our website. From all of us here, thank you for listening. We'll see you next time. The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association and accordingly should not be construed as representing ABA policy.